All right, good morning. You guys uh, can be seated. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today we're going to be continuing. Whoa, that sounds awesome. All right, um, we're going to be continuing our series in Retro Faith through the book of James in chapter 4. Um, I'd actually thought about preaching uh, Numbers 30 this morning, but since I saw the number 30 on the scoreboard last night in Husky Stadium, I figured that was good enough uh, at the Apple Cup, so I figured we could go ahead and go on with James. So, yeah, a great kickoff to a sermon about humility. So, um, all right, well, Sam felt that I was uniquely qualified to preach uh, the verses we're going to talk about today um, because, unlike most of the leadership team, uh, I had spent most of my adult life um, as, as uh, what the Bible would call a friend of the world. Um, I had uh, grown up in church, and I had known many truths about God as it related to don't do this or do that, which usually meant don't listen to certain music, don't sleep with your girlfriend, don't drink, things like that. Um, and I understood the importance of believing in Jesus so that you could go to heaven when you die. And I knew that church folk were good and sinners were bad. Um, and so as I grew up and finally got to uh, leave the house, I decided to go to the University of Washington. And um, I joined a fraternity. And I joined a fraternity because in high school I was on the Knowledge Bowl team and in the band, and I was kind of a geek, and I thought that frat guys would be cool. And I desperately, desperately wanted to be cool, and um, I've obviously failed in that for most all my life. But um, I, I joined the fraternity, and, and I had this really foolish notion that because I'd grown up in the church, and that, that even though I had never really read my Bible and I didn't have any spiritual depth, that I would just start a Bible study in my room, and by the end of the fall semester, the entire house uh, would be saved, and we'd all be Christians, and uh, I'd have this great evangelistic impact on this fraternity. Um, but instead, as I met uh, these guys in the fraternity that, uh, you know, my church and the Bible is, is called Sinners, I found out, wow, these, these people, they're, they're really nice. They're really cool. They're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, they're successful. They're charismatic. And, and so very quickly, like in the matter of just a few days, instead of me having an evangelistic relationship with my fraternity, my fraternity had an evangelistic relationship with me. And so um, I spent the next five plus years diving into a lifestyle um, uh, just pursuing everything that you could imagine from the movie Animal House with just great vigor, whether it was sex or alcohol or success, whatever it was, um, I, I chased it with um, the excitement of a kid that kind of found himself alone in the middle of Disneyland. I had no tether. I was just kind of going all over the place. And, and in fact, the fraternity made me rush chairman because I was so passionate about this, this new life and this new experience um, that, um, that, that I was great at pointing other young guys down that same path. And, and especially guys that were like me that had grown up in the church um, and, and weren't quite sure which direction they wanted to go with their life. Um, and then after college, uh, when most guys kind of grew up and mature, I was still kind of the, the frat captain there. And uh, I was the guy that would make the plans on the weekends. Uh, on wh which bars we'd go out to, which clubs we'd go out to, whose phone numbers we were going to get, things like that. Um, and I told all my friends I was a Christian because I had prayed this prayer when I was seven. And, and I told them that even though my life looked so much worse than, than even theirs did, that I was forgiven um, because of uh, some sense of, of what Jesus had done. Um, and at times, I still had a sense that my life wasn't quite right. But, and then maybe that there was something different I, I should be doing, but I, I just was like, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, it, you know, all these bad things I'm doing are fine, but, you know, it'll, it'll all work out in the end. And I would resist any thoughts of conviction or feeling or guilt with vigor because they interfered with my deepest desire, which was for me to have a relationship with the world that I found so much more attractive than anything I had seen um, demonstrated in a relationship with God. And James is going to talk about this a little bit in chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. So if you'd turn there with me, um, we'll read through those real quick. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I know that these may not sound like very encouraging words uh, on the Thanksgiving holiday, but I believe that this section of Scripture outlines the very essence of the gospel. That we are created by God to be in a loving relationship with Him, and that we've willingly exchanged that relationship for one with a world that is in opposition to Him. That we live in an active state of conflict as an enemy of God, and that He reinitiates relationship. He shows us unmerited grace, and He sends us Jesus to live and die on our behalf. And that grace that he shows us, it humbles us and it transforms our hearts, leading to submission, repentance, sanctification, and then eventually exaltation and restoration of relationship with him. So when we dive into verse four here, it says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, when we hear you adulterous people, one of three things probably happens. We either say, yeah, those adulterous people, (laughs) because we think he's not talking about us. Or, Or maybe, no, not me. How dare you question my faith? Or maybe your response is just, who cares if some book says, I've betrayed some God that I'm not even sure exists. And see, I think there's an error in each of those responses because they're either rooted in religious, sectarian self-righteousness or anger over your imperfection finally being exposed or just plain, worldly, God-denying pride. And very seldom do we respond with grief over our sin and over our rebellion. Or we very rarely respond with humility before God. And I think in part, this is because we don't have a good understanding of what the world is from a biblical standpoint. Or we don't have a clear concept of God as creator of the universe. And even if we have those, it's really hard for us to understand why someone like James, in talking about God, would use words like adultery, enmity, enemy, Jealousy, gloom, um, wretchedness. Because, see, if you grew up in the church, you likely knew the world as these evil cultural things and cultural people that were to be avoided. So that was cable television, R-rated movies, unless Jesus was the star of them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, double standard, sure. Um, Dancing, uh, you know, having non-Christian friends was worldly. Maybe how you dressed. Uh, Maybe if you listened to music that wasn't played in church or on Christian radio. And you probably um, maybe went to a youth retreat where someone talked to you about the dangers of the world. And you got really fired up and you came home and you grabbed all your CDs and you threw them in the garbage. You said, I'm done with that. And then six or eight weeks later, you're really ticked off because you don't have anything good to listen to anymore. Um, Luckily for me, the only time I did that, I had a lot of uh, MC Hammer and Janet Jackson and Bobby Brown. So that was a collection that needed to be burned anyway. So (laughs) it worked out well for me. Um, But you probably saw the world or culture as something to be feared or retreated from. And sinners were those people that were in the world. And they were to be avoided like the plague as if you might catch their disease if you were friends with them or hung out with them. And you certainly didn't treat them as people that needed to be engaged, people that needed to be loved and redeemed, because you probably just saw the world as us and them, or friends and enemies. 
And if you're not a Christian or you didn't grow up in the church, you likely approach culture very differently. And you probably had little regard for seeing things as right or wrong from any sort of biblical or outside standard. But most likely you saw the world from a place of self-fulfillment and self-preferences that says, well, does it work for me? Do I like it? Does it feel right? Um, what's in my best interest? That kind of becomes your framework for engaging with the world and engaging with others. And if you had much experience with Christians, um, they were probably the socially and culturally ignorant and intolerant people that did silly things like throw away all their CDs or um, just called you a sinner because you were doing the same things they were doing, but they said that some God that you're not even sure you believed in forgave them. And so, since you were ignorant of what Christianity truly believes, you decided you could tolerate every aspect of the rest of the world, but you couldn't tolerate the Christians. And so again, it was you versus them, you had your friends, and they were your enemies. And regardless of whatever team you've claimed, we typically think in terms of us in opposed to them, when the theme of Scripture if you really read it, it's really all of us, believers, non-believers, anybody in the world, in direct opposition to Him, the God, the Creator of the universe. See, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they willingly rebelled against God. And the world has consistently rejected any sort of real deep, meaningful relationship with their Creator from that point forward. And James calls us all adulteresses, uh, because throughout Scripture, God constantly compares His relationship, whether it's with Israel, whether it's with the church, whether it's humanity, both collectively and individually, He compares that relationship to a relationship between a faithful husband and, and an unfaithful bride. Isaiah 54, 5 says it this way, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and the God of the whole earth He is called. See, this imagery of husband and bride is important to grasp because in it we see that humanity's relationship with God is to be as central and devoted as a marriage, a good marriage, should be. And nothing else is to supplant our desire and our loyalty to God. And you might ask yourself, well, what does that have to do with me being friends of the world if God created the world and, and, and if I'm married, I still have friends with other people? Well, see, we need to understand that when the New Testament talks about the world, it's often referring to that which is in opposition to God's authority. So it's not the tree, it's not um, these lamps or, or whatever, it's, it's any power or authority or, or, or worldview that is in opposition to God. And Jesus says, if we recognize God as first in our lives, because of that enmity, because of that hostility, we will be hated by the world because the world hates God. He says it in, in John 15:18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, that's encouraging to know that a deep relationship with God means that the world is going to hate us. See, if you're married and you're friends with someone that hates your spouse and they hate you for, for having a relationship with your spouse, there's going to be conflict one way or another. They can't coexist. At a certain point, you will choose which relationship is most important to you. And you'll either remain faithful or you'll reject your spouse and commit adultery. You have to make a choice because these relationships are not mutually exclusive. And it's not just that the world is apart from God, but God in the world's brokenness sets himself apart and that he says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. In calling us an adulterous people, James is making it clear 
that we're not thinking about adultery, we're not lusting after the world, but we've already made our choice. Collectively, individually, we've all traded in our relationship with God for the false promise of something that we think is better. When I joined the fraternity and saw the, the revelry and the lifestyle they had, I found that more attractive than a relationship with God. And I chased it and I pursued it. I thought it was better, and really all I was doing is telling God that He wasn't enough. That my joy wasn't going to be found in Him, but was going to be found in things that, that, that in some ways He had designed for good, but that I had perverted and made ultimate. And this condition of enmity came between me and God, as it has with us. And it's a word that's not often used, but it's, it means a feeling or condition of hostility, of hatred, of ill will, of animosity, or even antagonism. So in aligning ourselves with that which is in opposition to God, James says we make ourselves an enemy of God. This enmity with God, it changes the nature and the condition of our relationship and that we have chosen the world, an idol, less than God, over the one true God. And he goes on to talk about this in, in verse 5. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose? As the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell within us. God's jealousy is not something that we really talk about much. And, and, and much like the world, I, I don't think God's jealousy is something that we understand. Because... From a man-centered perspective, we think of jealousy as, um, as not a very virtuous emotion. We think of it as unhealthy, actually, like, like a 13-year-old girl that's picked off because some girl's talking to her boyfriend, or like a cougar fan that's jealous that he's not a husky or something like that, you know, that, or maybe just your neighbor when he gets a new car, um, and that, that, that jealousy that comes. It's not something that we would ever consider that a rational and loving God would feel, and the great theologian of America, of, of our day, really, the spiritual pastor of our whole country, um, addresses this, Oprah Winfrey, when she says she has reconciled... <laughs> when, when Oprah was asked how can she can reconcile Christianity with her new world, uh, new spirituality, which is really not new, um, she says, well, I was in my Baptist church at 27 hearing how great God is, and God is everything, and, and then I heard, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I said, wait, something struck me. Well, if God is all, God is jealous? God is jealous of me? It, it just didn't feel right in my spirit, she said. I believe God is loving, and God is in all things. And she goes on to quote Eckhart Tolle, saying that instead of us being made in God's image, he says that man has made God in his image. Um... And I have to kind of ask myself, who's really making God in their own image if if something doesn't feel right, you get to change who God is? See, we are fickle. We are constantly changing. We're constantly searching uh, for something that we think is better or, or something that will please us in that moment. But God is faithful. And His character doesn't change. And God is not jealous of us because he wants to be like us or because he wants what we have or because he's some sort of insecure deity because God is completely sufficient on his own without us. He doesn't need us for anything. But he's jealous of us like a faithful husband would be with a wayward bride. And I'd ask any of the men here, if your wife became a prostitute tomorrow and you weren't upset about it, would you be considered very loving? I don't think so. We're designed for God. And when we chase after things that are not intended for us, of course he's going to get jealous. Because God's jealousy is rooted in his deep and abiding and faithful love for us. And so he treats spiritual adultery idolatry really, as such a big deal to him because he created the spirit and the soul that dwells within us. And as creative beings, we're not our own. We're not spiritually single. We're his. And when we chase after the world, we're saying that he's not enough. That, that we found a better suitor. 
but, but we're, we're his. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. See, I love God's jealousy. I praise God's jealousy. I take comfort in God's jealousy because I need God's jealousy. Because I am constantly turning away from Him and chasing after the world. And when He meets my infidelity, He doesn't meet it with weak indifference because He doesn't care. And He doesn't meet it with righteous wrath. And let there be no doubt that our sin justly angers God. But His response is with an intensely powerful and beautiful jealousy that leads him to pursue us to the ends of the earth. Even when I was in the fraternity, I had a Christian roommate for a time, and, and I, would, I would constantly try to get away from rooms with him because he was always challenging me about the course of my life. And we, we ended up um, uh, moving in together after college with a few other guys, and um, he's just a guy that loved Jesus, but every Friday night he'd be out there with me uh, at the bars and at the clubs, sipping soda, driving me home, making sure I didn't go, uh, go too far off the rocker. And, and, and he was always there uh, pursuing me. And, and, and he actually went to a church in Seattle, Mars Hill, for a year and a half, even though he comes from a different theological tradition. Uh, he didn't really agree with some of the things there, but he went to that church because the Holy Spirit, he said, told him that that is where Chris is going to hear the gospel and that's where he's going to meet his wife. And, and he went there for a year and a half. And then, finally, I went with him. It took him that long for him to, to, to convince me to go. And so he'd go with me on Friday nights and Saturday nights out to the bar if I would go with him on Sunday to church. And, and, um, and he was there with me for a year and a half as my spirit was being shaped and I was constantly being convicted of my sin and, 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 until the Sunday that I met my bride there. And, and then he stopped going, and I, I didn't really know why. And, and that's when he told me, he said, well, I was supposed to go there so that you'd meet your wife and, and that you'd meet Jesus there, and, and now I'm, I'm moving on. But in the absolute depth of my sin, God was there pursuing me and drawing me out of his jealousy because he didn't want me to be with the world. He wanted me to be with him. And that transformation and, and that pursuing, it, it shows itself in grace. And, and in verse 6, it says, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, in the depths of our sin, in the height of our rebellion and of our idolatry, literally caught in the act of spiritual adultery, it's God that reinitiates the relationship. And though there is still a condition of hostility and animosity and enmity between us and God, and even though we made ourselves His enemies, deserving His rejection and His wrath, He acts as the agent of reconciliation. For no other reason than His goodness, His faithfulness, and His loving grace that He shows us through Jesus Christ. If you haven't memorized a lot of Scripture, and you're not sure where to start, start with this. Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still adulterers, while we were still idolaters, while we were still enemies, He died for us. And it's God's grace through Jesus and through the cross that is at the absolute heart of the gospel that while we proudly give God the spiritual middle finger and run off with our new lover, He humbly pursues us with Jesus, sending Him as God in the flesh. And he initiates with Jesus as Jesus calls out our sin and calls us back to him. And he reconciles us with Jesus, willingly taking the punishment for our rebellion on the cross, his shed blood, washing us clean of our sins. And he restores us with Jesus by his resurrection, providing newness of life with him so that we no longer have to be slaves of the world. God gives grace. And we have to understand it's unquestionably undeserved. James reminds us that God opposes, literally sets himself against the proud. And the truth is, in our spiritual adultery, in our idolatrous condition, we're all proud. We all think that, that in our disobedience we're justified in our actions. Proverbs 30.20 says this, This is the way of an adulteress, 
She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. See, spiritual adultery has become so natural to us, it's like eating. And we indulge in it proudly. So it has to be God that humbles us. Because we won't do it on our own. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He melts away unbelieving pride in our hearts to see the power of the grace that He shows us in Christ. And God's grace, literally His gospel, will lead us away from pride. And it should lead us to a place of humility. As He uses His Spirit to convict us of sin and see the beauty of His grace. And so, as Christians, when we see the cross, when we see Jesus suffering and dying, we're shown the depths and the pain of the consequences of our sin. And our response should be a joyful, humble gratitude. Seeing the length that God goes to pursue, to initiate, to reconcile and restore us, transforms us in a way that we're literally not the same person. We're redeemed. We're renewed. We're born again so that we no longer um, are pursuing or serving the world, but our deepest desires are to pursue and to serve God. And that saving and transforming grace of Christ, it leads us to a response. And James outlines in the next few verses what that response looks like as literally our lives are going to be turned upside down. He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, James blows up this idea that I lived with for, for half a decade, that God's grace meant that I could continue to live a life of open sin and rebellion, and, and that all is forgiven and I could go to heaven when I died. And I don't want you to hear me wrong because regardless of whatever place you're coming from today, you need to know that the cross of Christ is absolutely big enough to cover all your sins. But it doesn't just save us from the wrath of sin, but it also saves us to a life of freedom from sin. That while we're actively resisting God, by His grace, we now willingly submit to Him and submit to His absolute authority in our lives and we actively renounce and resist the world that stands in opposition to God. Titus 2 talks about it. If you guys would turn with me real quick to Titus 2, 11, 14. Just a few uh, books back. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So we see that salvation... It leads us here and now, not just in the future when we, when we get to heaven, but here and now to renounce ungodliness because we're redeemed. We get to zealously obey God. And as new creations, we joyfully submit ourselves to God. And in doing so, we actively resist the devil. And see, the devil and the Satan in New Testament, um, he's often referred to as the God of this world. And he seduced Adam and Eve. And he seduced us away from God. And before we've been saved and redeemed and transformed by his grace, we didn't actively resist the devil because in our spiritual adultery, we were literally sleeping with him. And I know that that's shocking, but, but, but literally that's the relationship that we had. We were in submission to him, not submission to God. And so we repent. We turn away from that. We turn to God. We renounce our friendship with the world. We throw off the authority of Satan in our lives. And the devil, like a jilted lover, he becomes jealous, but not out of love, but out of pride and anger. And that he's now an enemy that we get to resist by God's power. Second Peter, or sorry, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Well, James gives us a promise. 
that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He doesn't say that Satan won't engage us or attack us, but we have assurance that we'll be delivered from that by the power of God. That we're still in a battle. We're still in a battle that day by day we're having to resist his temptation and his seduction. And we know in the end that we will be victorious, not because of anything intrinsically good or great about us, but because the power of God through the Holy Spirit lives in us, and our allegiance is no longer to the world and to Satan, but it's to the Creator God. And it's important to understand that life in Christ, living in a world opposed to Him, is still going to be a struggle. See, every time I would come to some point or to some camp where there would be um, some speaker talking about his salvation experience, um, it always left me kind of disappointing because they usually had a story, and I know that these are true, and so if this is you, don't, don't get too offended, but they usually had some story where they're like, yeah, I was, um, I was a pimp, and I had murdered my mom, and I joined the Taliban, and I stopped recycling, um, and uh, my, uh, my, my life was really bad, and I was addicted to crack, and then I met Jesus, and I never wanted to do anything bad ever again. And I was like, Wow. That's really tough because I thought I've met Jesus and yet I'm still struggling. That I'm constantly tempted. Why, why is that? Why, why is there this, this challenge? Why, why is it just this switch? And see, everybody likes to tell about their salvation and how they met Jesus and how their life was transformed. But nobody usually likes to talk about the next days and the next weeks and the next months and the next years that were battles and are battles and are, are painful and are struggles. Because while God can absolutely transform you like that, most of our experiences are, are probably different in where we see God and now our, our deepest desires are different, but there's still challenges, there's still temptations. And you have to understand if you're a Christian that, that those temptations and those struggles are okay, but that we get to partner with God in what he calls sanctification. Where yes, we have faith in Jesus, where we're justified now, we're no longer under the wrath of our sin, but we still need to be cleansed and purified and our lives still need to be shaped to look more and more like Him. See, we have to understand that it's okay to, to have challenges. And so James give, gives us instructions in those challenges as we work with God through sanctification. He tells us, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That through His grace... God breathes life into a relationship that for all purposes was dead. And His grace is not the end, but it's rather a new beginning of life with Him. That we haven't just traded in one master for another, and yes, we submit to God, but it's not out of reluctant obedience, it's, it's out of restoration of a full and deep and affectionate relationship with God through Jesus. He doesn't just pursue us, excuse me, and save us, and then leave the rest up to us and say, all right, get cleaned up and, and come back with me. No, when challenges and temptations come, and they absolutely will come, He tells us to run to Him as our help and our strength and our confidence. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. This is beautiful. That in our struggles and in our pain and in our temptation and in our failures, that God still longs to be with us. That He doesn't wait for us to get better. That He calls us back to Him. That with Christ, even in our darkest hours, we're still never alone. He says, come, come to my throne. There's mercy here. There's grace here. I am here. And so when I was a good church boy, proud of myself for knowing some of the Bible and, and obeying the rules, I thought that I could proudly come before God based on my own self-righteousness. And then as my life turned to active rebellion, I just ran away from God and wanted nothing to do with him. And then, as God pursued me and confronted me and challenged me with my life and with my sin, 
my response was usually to want to retreat even farther and hide in shame. But instead of being unworthy to be in presence, uh, in his presence, by the cross, I had an understanding that I'm no longer God's enemy, but that I get to stand with him face to face at his throne with confidence, not pride, because of Jesus' blood shed on my behalf. And he instructs us to constantly seek and desire him with a promise that when we do, when we seek him, when we pursue him, that he will absolutely be there. He doesn't go away. We do. But when we come back, he's right there. And over the days of our lives, the weeks, the years that we are granted on this earth, my hope is that we move towards him in every aspect of our lives. Because the alternative is for us to just stand still, remain paralyzed where we are and where God found us, when He has told us to rise and to walk. Or worse, we can deceive ourselves or buy into a lie that says we can receive His grace and still turn and walk the other way. His grace has a transforming power on our hearts that turns us towards Him. And he goes on to tell us in verse 7, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. See, we're justified before God by the cross. Our relationship with Him is restored. God came down to the world as Jesus, and He found us in the filth and the mire and the brokenness of this world, and He dove into all of that mess, even though we were set up as His enemy, and saves us by His grace, and then calls us His friend. And as our relationship with Him grows in depth and intensity, we begin to work with the Holy Spirit through the process of sanctification. Through that process of cleaning and purifying. See, He accepts us in our mess, but praise God, He loves us, not, uh, loves us enough rather to not let us stay in our mess. That He uses hands and says, clean, clean your hands, because hands symbolize actions, they symbolize deeds, they symbolize behaviors, that we're being cleaned by the Holy Spirit so that we'll stop playing in the mud. And our lives look different because as James has said and Sam's preached on, we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of it. But we have to ask ourselves, what does that look like? Well, Isaiah 1.16 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good and then seek justice and correct oppression. So, that cleansing of our hands might mean that we actually have to stop doing evil. There might actually be aspects of our lives that are no longer compatible with a new life in Christ. And it doesn't mean that you throw away all your CDs or that you erase your iPod, but it might mean you have to check out some porn or turn off your computer. It might mean that, it might even mean that there are places you can't go anymore. It might mean that for a period that, that, uh, that there are even people that you can't be around and relationships that need to end for a time. And there's activities, behaviors that you cannot engage in any longer, behaviors that have to change. And you need to, to seek God's will for you in that. And, and the only way we can do that is to learn to do good. We can't just rid ourselves of evil leaving an empty void for evil to return to. See, each of us has had a lifetime of sin and man-centered worldliness that needs to be deprogrammed. And we need to have a new Christ-centered worldview that needs to be installed and uploaded. And so we ask God for wisdom. Sam's preached on that through James here. We ask God for wisdom in prayer. We seek it in His Word. And that might mean as well that you might need to humble yourselves and sit under some teachers. See, for me, it wasn't just enough that, okay, God had pursued me. Um, I now had a saving understanding of Him. I desired for something better. But I actually had to put people in my life that had walked down this path for years before and, and, and that had a love and a faith and a knowledge of Christ that I could learn from, that, that the examples of my life that I've been following weren't going to work for me anymore. 
And so I had to pursue leadership. I had to pursue um, discipleship for, for men that had been down that path. Because I couldn't learn it on my own. See, you need people that can walk alongside you to act as a mirror, to act as encouragement. Because Christianity is never intended to be lived alone. Like I said, we need to have mirrors around us shining light into our lives. Because without them, we can't even see where we need to be cleaned. In Christianity, self-reliance is not a virtue. Gospel community is a virtue. Proverbs 30.12 says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And he also says in, in Proverbs 18.1, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. We're so broken. Sometimes we can't even see all the brokenness within us. And as much as we need the mirror of gospel truth in God's word, and we absolutely do, we need the mirror of gospel community through his church. That, that through growing together as a community, helping each other, that, that we'll be equipped to be able to shine light into the world as our lives have been changed and we lead lives of gospel mission. And so, as restored and renewed brides, we cease to do evil, we're learning to do good, we actually start to do good. We don't hide and retreat from the world. We re-engage the world. We re-engage the world to proclaim and to live out the gospel by seeking justice, by correcting oppression of sin that binds the world individually and corporately. And we get to act as agents of grace and mercy to the marginalized. Jesus didn't tell us to hide and withdraw from the world in fear or disgust, but to re-enter it on a rescue mission as he did to save and save the lost with the power of the gospel. He tells us this in John 17 as he's praying for us to God the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. So we go into the world. James goes on in, in his verses to say, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, ceasing evil, learning to do good, doing good, engaging the world, it's not just to fulfill lists. It's not just to check boxes so, so that we think that, that we're doing everything we should, but those actions, those, those, those tasks, those behaviors, they come out of an overflow of a heart that is now singularly devoted to Christ. Our actions have to come from a new heart that, that no longer has a divided allegiance. See, James, in calling us double-minded and calling us to make a decision to have a pure heart that's only for God, he echoes the words that we see found throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we hear Joshua say in Joshua 24 that you must choose this day who you will serve. And Elijah in 1 Kings 18 says that if, if, if we have one foot with the world and one foot with God, we will continually limp and stumble. That we have to have one heart, one mind towards God. And Jesus says, of course, that in Matthew 6, that we can't serve two masters because we'll either love one and hate the other and we'll serve one and despise the other. We have to. For lack of a better term, we, we have to actually go all in. We have to decide once um, and, and hopefully for all that my, your allegiance is absolutely for God. Our sanctification has to come from a heart that its deepest desires no longer yearns for the world, but has joyfully given its allegiance to Jesus. It's a new heart that we're given that is cleansed and is humbled and is contrite. And James describes some of the emotions of that heart in verse 9. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. doesn't sound very exciting, but a humble heart, it's broken 
by the conviction of sin. See, it doesn't see sin and rebellion the way that the world sees it. To either be glorified or, or, or laughed off. It doesn't take sin lightly. It doesn't... It, it sees sin with a weightiness that whenever it looks at the affliction of our hearts or the affliction of the world or the condition of the world, it's moved to tears. Because it's a heart that, that while it praises God for His grace and His mercy, it looks at the world and it looks at ourselves in the mirror and it cries out for a restoration that only He can give. And while I've been on this process of sanctification, if you will, for, for five or six years now, I've, I've experienced this broken heart in, in a new way in, in just the past few months. As I told you, my, my life in the Greek system um, was best be- defined by spiritual adultery and rebellion. It was, it was quite frankly, um, a time of some of the darkest episodes of my whole life where values that I thought I had held with deep conviction, I tossed aside um, for, for whatever would, would solve my problems or, or give me happiness in those moments. And this last month, before work, I was, I was down in Seattle, and it was 6 in the morning, and, and I was running from, from Green Lake to, uh, to the University of Washington to get some exercise in, because I knew Thanksgiving was coming. <laughs> and I um, should have ran a little bit more. Um, and uh, as I often do when I'm running, I try to redeem the time and, and listen to some podcasts and some, of some sermons. And um, as I was running through the Greek system, the sermon I was listening to was addressing specific sins that I had dealt with. Um, and it was talking gravely of not just the consequences of those sins, but, but of God's grace in those sins. And as I ran by my fraternity... Um, I literally fell down. And I, and I didn't trip, because I, I have tripped a few times while running. Um, but, but I fell down because of the weight of that sin. That, that it literally, I, I know this sounds cliche, but it literally hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I was on this, this broken, tattered old sidewalk with my arms and, and legs spread, and, and I was sobbing um, uncontrollably, and, and, and tears were hitting the concrete, and, and, and I could feel um, the, the pebbles from the concrete pressed against my face. I, I don't know that I'd ever been lower to the ground than that. And, and I was there for, for, for minutes, and, and, and I, I, I literally couldn't, couldn't get up, and I actually started having this fear that like, you know, it's six in the morning, so nobody in the Greek system's awake. But I thought, gosh, what if somebody was actually awake and saw me there? They probably would, you know, call an ambulance or, or just think I was crazy. Um, but but I was there for minutes, just feeling how imperfect I was before God, how how staining my sin was, and and how much it set me apart from Him, and that yet a perfect and loving and powerful Creator still loved me. And that, that while I'm not really known for my humility, in fact, most of you probably know me as prideful and arrogant, God humbled me that morning in a new way that I never experienced. And literally after minutes, the only way that I could get back up was in meditating on the cross. That, that it actually felt like one hand after another was grabbing that cross and pulling myself up. That, that, that Jesus had paid the penalty for that sin. That, that I was washed clean, that, that, that he paid the penalty for that sin and that all the pain I had caused others and the pain I had caused myself was washed clean. And, and because of what he did, I was able to get back up and I was reminded that by his grace, I'm no longer defined by just by that period of my life and even that condition of my heart, but that I'm defined by what He did on that cross. God doesn't see me. He sees His Son. And it was, it was a difficult run, and, and I, I, I sent out a letter to 
several friends of mine, Christian and not, and kind of told them that experience a little bit, and people that had known more about the, my, my past. And, um, but but it, was, it was very challenging. And so there was joy. There is joy, but it's in the cross. And, and I just hope that when you think about your lives and you think about sin, that you don't just see it as this light, these rules that are broken or not broken, but that you understand that it's absolutely a disease and a condition that has affected every part of your being. And that seeing that and seeing the sin of others and seeing the sin of this world makes you want to weep. Because only in that brokenness will you see the majesty and the grace and the beauty of God that can save and restore and redeem a world that's broken like this. Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. I pray that the cross and your sin and God's grace and mercy humbles you. I, I pray that we live lives that are defined by humility. That we're humbled by our sin. That we're humbled by a God that loves us enough to pursue us. And that we're humbled by His grace shown on the cross. And that we humbly submit and draw near to Him. And that we pursue sanctification by gospel truth, by gospel community. And that collectively and individually we would re-engage the world with humility through gospel mission. As we humbly wait to be reunited with Christ face to face. And so Jim's going to come back up and... We're going to get to sing. We're going to get to sing, um, for lack of a better term, love songs to that jealous husband that came and pursued us. And we're going to give our tithes and offerings to the God that purchased us with the price of, of His shed blood. And then we're going to go out and we're going to live lives of humility defined by the cross, re-engaging the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your ability um, to find us in our adultery, to pursue us, to reinitiate with us, and to cleanse us. And I'm so thankful that we get to partner with you and your Holy Spirit in sanctification, that day by day we get to look more and more like you until the point where we get to meet you face to face as you're exalted in your throne. Please just help continually give us hearts of humility that lead to worship and praise of you and to lovingly engage others. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.